2: At The Resident, all rooms are designed to combine pure comfort with luxurious British style and design. Whether you're escaping to London for a romantic break or visiting the city with friends and family, there's no better place to stay in the heart of the neighbourhood. Without The Resident, you might not get to London. And without The Resident, we wouldn't be here on Hollywood Sources. Hollywood Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident. The podcast starts now. no doubt and I'm not going to insult the intelligence of your viewers to suggest otherwise that the last few weeks and even couple of months have been really difficult for the SNP possibly even some of the most difficult months to be faced as a party uh, in our recent history what I can't allow that to do what I won't allow that to do is distract me from the job of not just leading this party that I love and that I've been a member of for almost 20 years but importantly and crucially leading the country at a time of great challenge. Hello and welcome to Holyrood Sources. We're recording on Tuesday the 20th of June. I'm Callum MacDonald. Thank you very much for being with us this week. Thanks for all your emails, your tweets, your comments as well on TikTok after our episode last week with Alex Salmond, um, just the latest former First Minister to speak to us on the podcast. Uh, We're still in pursuit of several others, uh, so watch this space and we'll see what happens. Uh, As ever on the podcast, we're joined by Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond when he was First Minister. Hello, Jeff. Hello, hello, hello. And beaming in, beaming in from the Shetland Bureau today, uh, we have former Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives, Andy McKeever. Hello, Andy. Hello, hello. And what are you, why are you in Shetland? What's going on? And why
0: did you answer such a creepy way there? That was really (laughs) creepy. We should do that again. That Was it? Our five listeners have gone already. I'll
1: just say hello then. Uh, no, I, uh, we, um, Shetland Island's Council is a client of Message Matters. Uh, we do a variety of things for them at Holyrood and Westminster. And so I'm up here uh, seeing them. And I have brought with me our special guest uh, because of the job that she currently does, which is very relevant to local democracy and all things that uh, people up here in Shetland are talking about. So I have brought our guest with me on the twin prop Logan Airplane. And our guest
2: is... Are you gonna, You're not going to do go it. On. Our guest is Kezia Dugdale, the former leader <laughs> of Scottish Labour. Uh, hello, Kezia. How are you?
3: Am I supposed to introduce myself? What no. kind of outfit
2: is this? Well, well, to be honest, I thought... I thought not, I'm was like a celebrity anymore. We don't... <laughs> not Ant <hands> and Why <laughs> not?
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I thought Andy Although, was going to go the whole hog. It a bit of a jungle. <laughs>
2: We are often lost in the wild. I should really say Professor Kezia Dugdale, should I not?
3: Yes, you should. I'm a professor of practice and public service at the University of Glasgow, where I also teach.
2: And you are in the um, unenviably unique position of being on a trip to Shetland with Andy McKeever at this point, Kezia, which, I mean, are you being punished for something? Is this worse than a Bush Tucker trial?
1: It's so, a
3: money-can't-buy experience, that's what it is. <laughs> it is a dichotomy. So on the one hand, I'm here with Andy McKeever, but on the other hand, I'm in the beautiful Shetland Isles. And I had never been here before. And um, It's not a place I came as Labour leader. I was in the Western Isles a, a lot. Good decision. And was viewed in yeah. area that was a, a lot more electorally significant, if we want to be so blunt about it. But in the two years I was Labour leader, we had... F- elections in the EU referendum so I was on a constant election cycle and unfortunately that never took me to Shetland so I've arrived here for the first time in my life and it's absolutely beautiful it's as hot as it is in the mainland and it's looking glorious.
2: Do you know I've never actually been to Shetland I've never I've been to Orkney but I've never made it to Shetland but I hear good things I hear good things uh, we'll talk more about your uh, the purpose of your visit throughout the podcast, actually, Kezia. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much for joining us. And of course, if you are not already subscribed and following the podcast, then please do that now. You get the insider take on Scottish politics with Jeff and Andy and a whole smorgasbord of guests as well. Uh, so make sure you follow and subscribe and be part of the podcast. All you have to do is email us. The email address is hello at hollywoodsources.com. You can have your say on what you're hearing this week. We'll read out your messages, your questions, whatever they may. So the email address, hello at hollywoodsources.com. Right, I mentioned former first ministers uh, a moment ago... Um, We are recording the afternoon of Tuesday the 20th of June and Nicola Sturgeon has just been speaking actually just before we pressed record She has returned to the Scottish Parliament for the first time since she was arrested and then released without charge pending further investigation Um, It's not the first time she's spoken but it's the first time she's been back in Parliament Uh, Let's have a little listen to some of what she had to say She must have thought about quitting
3: I think about what's in the best interest of the party I've given my life to, what's in the best interest of the government that until very recently I headed and spent 16 years either being the head of or second in command in and obviously I think a lot about in this difficult situation what is best for me as an individual and I will come to judgments people can disagree or agree with those judgments that is entirely down to them. I understand some of the the comments that have been made, but I take all of these uh, issues and considerations very seriously
2: jeff what, what what do you make of I suppose first of all, the purpose of of why she was addressing reporters in in Hollywood in the Scottish Parliament what, what is there to be gained from that, I suppose, from a comms point of view?
0: Yeah, I think from a a, a personal point of view, um, I think she's just trying to draw somewhat of a line under it to stop. Journalists kind of badgering her in the parliament. I think that's the the biggest um, uh, thing that she's trying to achieve from doing this. Uh, it's not going to go away. This story for some considerable time. We know that. So and she has to get back to her parliamentary duties. So I think that's probably what she's thinking by uh, uh, doing this. Uh, I do wonder if Humza, maybe at his quieter moments, is thinking it would have been really uh, benef- better to me or better beneficial to me if if she'd chosen to to, to suspend. Herself uh, until the investigations are on are complete because, therefore, she might might be able to create a bit of distance, which we've been discussing this podcast for some weeks now, has, mm. um almost every question that he's asked or second question he's asked is about uh, Nicola Sturgeon or, indeed, the police investigation ongoing and being able to say, well, uh, Nicola's taken the honourable decision to suspend herself and will uh, deal with that Uh, once we know more might have been better but I think that was the main purpose behind it in all honesty yeah
2: fair she said uh, I'm back in parliament today getting on with my job representing my constituents she emphasised that she's heavily constrained on what she could say given the police investigation Uh, but she is absolutely certain that she's done nothing wrong and very strongly really saying she's not going to resign from the SNP Uh, Andy I noted actually in her first public comments which were on her driveway (laughs) the driveway with which we've all become quite familiar over the last few months, that somebody, I think it may have been Connor Gillis from Sky, but I'm only judging that based on the voice, so I'm not entirely sure, asked her, um, uh, based on what Alex Salmon had told this podcast last week, actually, you know, he shouted, would Nicola Sturgeon have suspended Nicola Sturgeon? And that, I suppose, that came up at the press conference again. I guess the kind of broad view, is there a double standard here? Is she not playing by the rules that she herself set slash imposed when she was the leader of the party?
1: Um, I suppose the honest answer to that is when Nicola Sturgeon had to deal with disciplinary issues, did she herself apply a consistent set of standards to her own disciplinary issues? I think that um, a lot of that was probably informed by who it was that was in trouble. So maybe Nicola Sturgeon wouldn't have suspended Nicola Sturgeon because she wouldn't have wanted to. Uh, and I think it's maybe the distinction between uh, her and those who... Uh, were in trouble under her watch. I mean, this is all really, really difficult for Hamza Yusuf. I suppose that there is no avoiding the fact that Nicola Sturgeon is news. She is obviously big, big news. Uh, and if we presume that uh, you know she wants to get back to Parliament and do her job, which is perfectly reasonable, then there's going to have to be an event like there was today. I might wonder whether she had to also do the Sunday press conference at her house if she was doing one today, which doesn't really have significantly different content in it, because then you're creating two days of news stories uh, instead of just one. And they're not good news stories. I mean, ultimately, um, okay, put to one side whether or not Hamza Yusuf would, at the moment, with everything else that's going on anyway, be able to create his own positive news agenda. That's maybe a separate issue. But what he doesn't need is two days of news stories about Nicola Sturgeon mm-hmm. when he might have just had one. Um, you know, We've said before how he needs to kind of create uh, his own story a little bit here. But his entire week has been dominated again by Nicholas Sturgeon. I mean, I was in the Parliament last week. His week was dominated by questions about Nicola Sturgeon, the sending of flowers to Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, that's a whole separate comms discussion to be honest um and the things he said about her being the best politician in europe or so on and, and so on so some of the problems he's made himself mm. over the last week and some of the problems he hasn't made himself but the characteristic of the last week is that it has all been about nicholas sturgeon again day after day after day after day and it is drip feeding the media more and more stories and it's hardly there for a surprise that the poll ratings continue to go in the wrong direction for them. So they have to, one way or another, get out of this cycle where the life of Hamza Yusuf revolves around Nicola Sturgeon.
2: Yeah, Kessy, I'm quite interested to get your take on this. As a, as a former leader, and I suppose a kind of zoomed-out take on this, actually, in sort of assessing the leadership strategy, if you can identify one, from Hamza Yusuf, and what the shadow of a former leader is actually sort of almost getting in the way of what he's trying to do. Is that that your perception? Do you kind of agree with what you've heard so far in terms of that leadership narrative that, that Yusuf is, you know, failing really to carve out for himself?
3: So I do feel for him because he has an unenviable job in one sense, in that he's come in as First Minister a job. He's no doubt wanted his whole life because why wouldn't you? But he's doing so... Um, at a late late stage in the SNP's um, time in office, inheriting an awful lot of problems, and now with very little money, drive or energy to get through those very difficult problems. That said, he's still the First Minister of Scotland. That's the most amazing job. It's a job I I dearly wanted. Um, And he needs to look um, a little bit more excited about it, actually, sometimes, and and to talk about what he wants to do with that incredible um, honour that he's got. Look, from a leadership perspective and on the issue of Nicola Sturgeon, I don't think she had a choice uh, other than to stop and chat today. I've been in that situation when you're in the midst of a scandal and you're trying to get from the members block to the parliamentary chamber. You either do it in organised fashion or you're getting chased through the corridor. Um, you could try and do the underground version of it, but <laughs> the journalists will pop up and find you. We, we are served by um, a, a very well-resourced, although arguably not well-resourced enough, but compared to other uh, parliaments and assemblies around the country, a very well-resourced media who um, w- want to ask difficult and challenging questions because that's their job and our democracy is greatly enhanced by it. So it had to be done in a controlled fashion today. But look, I don't think, actually, that Hamza Yusuf's problem is Nicola Sturgeon. I, I think Hamza Yusuf's bigger problem right now is indiscipline in the SNP. Uh, and the reason that is because I, I see reflections of what I've seen in the past in the Labour Party at the tail end of administration, when egos start to um, outpower discipline. People think they've got better ideas, that they can do things on their own terms. And, and then they start to do so in, in public. And the thing that I found particularly striking last week was... He had a challenge from Anas Arwar to Hamza Youssef saying, you're not strong enough to take Nicholas Sturgeon's membership card away, you're you're a weak leader. And then twenty-four hours later, the almost exact words were used by Michelle Thompson and appeared on the front of the national I think it's indiscipline in the party um, that we're seeing the SNP from the first time. That's the real threat to Hamza Youssef, not whether or not Nicola Sturgeon's got an SNP membership card in her purse. Mm.
2: That's interesting, Jeff, because there's that's a, a kind of theme that you've been pulling out a little bit over the last few weeks about whether this phase for the SNP is reminiscent of of a Labour Party of the past.
0: Yeah, um, I I recognise a lot of the traits that. Kezia uh, has mentioned um, uh, when we the SNP that is took office in 2007 there was a, a fractured Labour Party not just uh, between uh, the devolved parliamentarians but and Westminster but within uh, Holyrood as well uh, and, and Jack McConnell kind of confirmed that mm. and he felt he knew it was coming when he, we had him on the podcast recently but there's some other point I really want to uh, touch on that Kezia said she said you know, what is Hamza going to do with this honour of being in high office. And I still don't think we know. And and I, I know I'm uh, running the risk of repeating myself every week just now. But he needs to try and create distance from what has gone before, establish who he is, what he stands for, and what he wants to fight upcoming elections on. Now, the record is pretty challenging. We know that. There are some outstanding issues. Uh, but all of the things he's dealing with, be it Nicholas Sturgeon, or be it public policy challengers, are things he's largely had to inherit. I want to know what Hamza mm-hmm. believes in, stands for. And I think perhaps uh, the general, uh, the, the by-election, uh, likely by-election, Rutherglen could act as a point of departure and quite a helpful point of departure because he can say to his parliamentarians, he can say to his party, look, uh, this is what we run the risk of emulating in a year's time across the board. So this is what we're going to do This is what I'm going after uh, and really try and underpin this with a credible economic platform. I mean, there's polls out this week talking about the biggest issues being health and the economy. Uh, And I think they have he has to uh, address how he's going to advance both of those things. And he needs to do it very, very quickly.
2: Mm. It's worth mentioning, actually, just by way of uh, kind of the context for the podcast and uh, this week and the record, the recording. You mentioned the possible by-election, Jeff. So that recall petition has opened in the in the situation of the suspended MP Margaret Ferrier in her constituency. She was, of course, excluded from the House of Commons for breaching COVID rules, and so the way this works is it remains open for six weeks. That's until the end of July. More than ten percent of registered voters in Rutherglen and Hamilton West would need to sign the petition. For Margaret Ferrier to then lose her seat. Um, So we'll obviously keep an eye on that but as you say that could prove tricky. And while Nicola Sturgeon was speaking earlier today on Tuesday, it was confirmed by Lorna Slater uh, that the firm which was due to manage the recycling scheme, the deposit return scheme, has appointed administrators. Uh, This is Circularity Scotland, uh, 60 workers, Uh, work they're employed there um, and she's described it as a disaster. She's blamed the demise of the firm, I'm reading this from the BBC, she's blamed the firm's demise on the UK government's insistence that Glass be excluded. So there's lots of news, there's lots of backdrop for Hamza Yusuf to be getting his teeth into Um, and I don't know, the, the theme of the podcast in the last few weeks has been he's struggling with that. Kezia, how easy or difficult is it to carve out a message as a leader and to and to really sort of, you know, start nailing your colours to the mast. Is that something you ever struggled with or had to think hard about? I don't know. How, how easily did it come for you?
3: Well, look, I think I was in a pretty unique situation in that um, I became leader off the back of Labour losing 40 of its 41 seats yeah. in the 2015 uh, general yeah. election in the aftermath of an independence referendum um, where the constitution for the first time became the dominant issue in Scottish politics, and I would argue still does. I then spent two years as leader, uh, during which we went through four elections, uh, and including the EU referendum. So we were talking about Brexit and constitutional issues for a long period of time. So in all honesty, whilst I have no, no regrets, it's, I think it's also fair to say I never really had the time and space to establish my own platform about what I wanted to see or what I wanted the future of Scotland to be. The thing I look back on I'm most proud of is the prominence that I gave to issues around educational inequality and the role that our schools can play in closing the gap between the richest and the poorest kids in Scotland. I actually think that's had a bit of a legacy and that that, that is a driving issue in Scottish politics today. But, you know, there is more I would like to have done, of of course, Elections get in the way of progressing serious matters of public policy, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, no, that's a really interesting thought. And it's, it's an interesting kind of consideration, isn't it? Is that actually four or five years is not that long a time to get things done. Uh, and in the interest of kind of achieving things, it can feel quite, quite short. Uh, let's go on to discuss Keir Starmer, who, of course, is another bit of um, a bit of a newsmaker for Scotland this week. Um, a few weeks ago on the podcast, you'll remember we were discussing the leaked plan that had come from the Labour Party for North Sea oil and gas exploration. Well, here we are a few weeks on, and Keir Starmer has actually you know, announced, has, has clarified what his plan is. Uh, and here you go. Labour will end new North Sea oil and gas exploration, but help communities profit from clean power projects, says Sir Keir Starmer. He was speaking in Edinburgh, um, a well-known powerhouse of oil and gas you know exploration industrialization jeff it's odd that he didn't go a couple of hours further up the road is it not just as a starting out point
0: i think it would have made good political sense if he mm. came up to aberdeen uh, uh, home to you know what is a world-class oil and gas sector and actually the skills of which the critical mass of which will be so so crucial if we are to accelerate to net zero and, and advance and accelerate new energies um a couple of things on this. Uh, firstly, I'm going to try to give it a more positive note from what Keir Starmer eventually said. Because as you rightly say, two, two weeks ago, it was briefed that this was an, an end to all oil and gas uh, licenses. Then that was uh, significantly rode back on. And then it was, no, no, we will honor existing licenses at the point we take government. Now, uh, uh, if we're led to believe that there's around about 115, give or take, new licenses that could be approved in the next year, Uh, If that happens, that's a hell of a lot of licences to be uh, taken forward. Why is this so important? Um, It's so important because Keir Starmer now says that they uh, won't back any new licences, as we say, uh, when he takes government. Now, I still think that's foolhardy and it's misjudged and it's misguided for lots of reasons. Uh, But principally, two news stories that have come out today uh, kind of uh, evidence this. Firstly... Um, we have an Aberdeen firm uh, now taking a hit, removing itself from the greater Perth area. It's one of the largest undeveloped uh, oil reservoirs in the uh, central North Sea. And they're citing various challenges, including the, the fiscal environment uh, being very much prominent as part of that. And that's linked, of course, to the energy profits levy that the UK government currently have put in place. They've tried to address that with an energy profits levy, which Sarwar said himself yesterday he didn't think uh, could be much sustainable for much longer. So hopefully, there's a sign that that would be addressed. Uh, to whoever is uh, in government uh, following the next general election. Uh, but secondly, the FT reported that UK is close to signing a long-term deal for LNG, which is liquefied natural gas, with Qatar. Now, Qatar gas is three times more carbon-heavy than uh, what is domestically produced, and this is the point. We are going to demand and need oil and gas for some considerable time to come. Keir Star himself uh, understands that and has said so. What is the point in taking more carbon heavy imports that don't have jobs in this country attached to them um, only for us uh, to lose that critical mass, which is going to be so important. As I say, that skills which are easily transferable, particularly to offshore wind in the future. If you're really keen in getting a clean energy future, you must protect your world-class industries. I'm not aware in Norway of them uh, hugely critiquing the oil and gas industry um, uh, to the same extent as we are in this uh, country, and yet they're advancing uh, renewables at a scale uh, unheard of just now. Uh, That is to be welcomed. That is what we should be seeking to replicate in our country. So I think he needs to take a long, hard look at this. Now, another source of optimism was the language in the document. I've never heard this before. It said, we will not hand out new licences that's a very strange word. And, and because I've been on the other side of the, uh, uh, the fence, so to speak, in government, they'll have looked at this language around oil and gas very, very closely and not hand out. There is no handouts. They have to go through a, a particular process which meets climate compatibility checkpoints. And so I do wonder if there is some nuance and wiggle room in there. And they recognize that when they get into office, if there is uh, uh, more reliance on carbon heavy imports, will they uh, seek to uh, kind of modify their uh, um, approach. Mm-hmm. I hope uh, they do. Uh, all in all, last thing I'll say is uh, it looks like that the state-owned energy company yeah. that the Labour Party are seeking to uh, establish, they want to do it in Scotland. I think given that they've given some negative um, uh, uh, forecasts for oil and gas, would it not make sense for them to house uh, that state owned energy company in the northeast of Scotland and give a statement of real intent that they want to support uh, this great part of the world that's contributed so much to the UK's economic and energy security for 50 years.
2: Andy, come in on this. What does, what does Keir Starmer's announcement mean for Scotland?
1: Um, I don't think anybody has a problem with a destination. I think the discussion is about the journey. Um, And more particularly, whether a certain journey actually makes it counterintuitively more difficult to get to the destination. By which I mean, we all accept and know and want this to be a renewable future without any hydrocarbons. But without the hydrocarbons industry and the jobs that come with it and the profits that come with it, it's hard to see us getting there so quickly. And the thing that I find a bit curious, and I think it will come back to become a problem for the relationship between Scottish Labour and UK Labour, I'll be interested in Kes coming in on that as well, see what she thinks, Um, and also the relationship between Labour and the unions, is they, to me, have either deliberately, because it's a little bit too hot to handle, or accidentally missed the link between the two industries, the old and the new, and the fact that one actually depends on the other. They they have either accidentally or knowingly missed that link. And I'll tell you something that was really interesting uh, yesterday. Kez and I spoke to a group of school kids in Shetland yesterday. Uh, they were all S5, so it's a while ago for me, but I'm thinking they were, what, 15 or 16, right? Um, we asked them who believed in climate change, and every single one of them, as you would expect, said, yes, they did. And then we asked them, who wanted to stop drilling for oil off Shetland, and none of them wanted to stop. And they immediately, when they were speaking to us, they immediately made a link between jobs, just transition, and going from oil and gas to renewables. They di- they displayed a sophistication which I am yet to see on the political stage, and I thought that was... Just I was quite surprised by it because, to be honest, I thought even in Shetland and, you know, even in uh, Aberdeen, I thought a group of 16-year-olds would not be in favour of 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 hydrocarbons. But they were because mm-hmm. they immediately understood that that meant jobs. Um, and I thought that was quite fascinating. Labour is the only party, I think, who's able to bring those two things together in a cohesive argument. And I don't think they've done it yet.
2: Kazia, do you need to take Sir Keir Starmer to visit those school kids? Is that what's required here?
3: No, I, I think he does instinctively understand um, that North Sea oil and gas is fundamentally about jobs and livelihoods. I, I can't imagine he hasn't got that message yet. I, and I agree entirely with Jeff's analysis that if you're going to build GB energy you'd have to muster a pretty strong argument to put it anywhere other than Aberdeen. I I really struggle to see where else it might go, possibly Dundee, where there's been attempts in the past um, to have a focus on on decommissioning in particular. But I think the case for the North East is is pretty compelling. It's not an area that Labour are particularly electorally um, competitive at the moment. They have been in the past, and I think there'll certainly be a a feeling or a bit of cheer amongst the Scottish Conservatives that, uh, pitch like this from Keir Starmer, it will increase their chances of winning seats in the northeast of Scotland. But look, it is one of Keir Starmer's five missions to be a clean energy superpower in the United Kingdom. These are five missions that you can be sure have been focus grouped to death and and respond very well to the, the public mood. But I also think, as Geoff has indicated, they're they're very cleverly and, and tactically written. So, you know, I've come from a meeting this morning with a group of people that work in uh, oil and gas here in Shetland, and one of them said he'd read what the policy was, and he also read that uh, there was to be no more exploration. And he said, that that's fine, but know where all the oil is. All we need to do is to, to get it out of the ground. So he, he wasn't concerned by that phrase, you know, no more uh, exploration. and And he fully predicts now that, you know, between now and the next general election, which I think is looking at the tail end of it next year now, if not early twenty-five, because of the wider issues around interest rates and the inability to reduce inflation, there's 14 months now at least where a number of these licences could be granted. And at the very least, we should see the UK government now um, power forth with, with Camo and Rosebank, and that will take away a lot of people's concerns Labour, if they are to win the next election, will inherit these licences. And the world can can move on towards that transition where we still need and require North Sea oil and gas, but we still must also focus on the potential of renewable energy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds,
0: and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Here at Hollywood Sources, we're always enthusiastic about rigorous journalism. So we've been tapping up our sources to find out more about The Resident, which says it has excellent rooms in exceptional locations, providing heartfelt hospitality. Well, it seems their story checks out. Bossman56 says... Just spent three days at the resident Covent Garden. Room was excellent, so were the staff. The room and the hotel was clean and tidy. Staff were very friendly and very efficient. We'll be going back soon. And in the interest of double sourcing, because we can't just go with one, can we? How about this from Gufton? The best hotel I've stayed at in London. The customer service was unsurpassed from the moment I walked in the door. It makes us proud to be supported by the resident on Holyrood sources, You can join the resident online at residenthotels.com.
0: I I do wonder though if to Andy's point, the Labour Party, the policy wonks at the White Hall that supported him in this really truly understand the linkage. Uh, And I've said this before on the podcast, um, that this region where I'm calling in from, and indeed actually up to to Shetland, is responsible for um, a huge portion of the world's subsea engineering capability because of oil and gas. Now, that same capability is going to be so vital for offshore wind, particularly floating offshore wind, because the disciplines are very similar. So that high-value manufacturing piece on moorings, on electrolyzers for hydrogen as well, Um, but for uh, turbines. Now, that's really, really important, but they're not available at scale just now. We're talking mid-2030s with a a fair wind, excuse the pun, that we're going to have that going. I think more nearer 2040s. So what do we do in the meantime? This is the the definition of a transition. We have to incentivise what we have, else we will lose it to overseas. And and they are ready to pounce because we don't have that port infrastructure yet. And I hope, and I did see some interesting and positive comments in the Labour a document about enhancing port infrastructure so that we can actually do a lot of this work ourselves. Or we will lose it to Holland, to uh, uh, the Nordic countries as well. But a real statement of intent that recognises that linkage and says we cannot, we cannot cut off our nose to spite our face, I think would be really welcome. And you know what? The invite is open. I think Keir Starmer has an opportunity. You mentioned Labour's electoral um, kind of uh, malaise in the North East. Uh, and, and, and out with the central belt. Actually, you could extend it to this. Is a, this is something that touches all areas and parts of Scotland, and, and it is job security. It's there for us to be world leaders with a with the right policy interventions. And I think no uh, constituency could be out of Labour's reach before long if they get this right. Um, I just feel that yesterday's intervention just lack that knowledge and that linkage between the two industries. They are not binary industries. They are part of one energy sector. Uh, and the party that realizes that uh, first will will gain electorally. I'm, electrically, I'm sure of it. Final point just for you. I thought it was really interesting. We haven't covered this. Hamza Yusuf's response yeah, was really interesting. And the Scotsman today said mm. he thought that Keir Starmer's position in oil and gas was dangerous. Now, I think what that tells us is, is the SNP is going to change their... Uh, presumption against oil and gas um, to be a bit more favourable to the industry and that's really interesting because that tells us that they see opportunities particularly in the northeast of Scotland but in more rural communities as well so I I think this is going to be a big political hot potato for the next 14 months if you're right Kezia and I think that party that manages to uh, articulate this in the most comprehensive way again understanding that linkage between the two industries will be the one that can be very successful in terms of at trying to chart a more prosperous future for a country.
3: But yeah, My reading of it would be that the, the in principle approach to this policy will be stemming from Ed Miliband and the role that he's played um, in Labour's policy development broadly, but also the contribution he makes directly to the party's policy on climate change. There's no doubt in my mind that he's in command of this particular mission and what it looks like. But I then think it's gone through a kicking of the tyres process that's worked very hard on language and being quite tactical in its approach to allow certain nuances to be read, like the ones we've discussed around exploration and inheriting licenses that have already been granted. And I do think actually it's the best possible position Labour could get themselves in where they can still retain that high principle value based approach to climate change, but have enough to say to Unite and GMB, two of the big trade unions that are affiliated to the Labour Party that represent large numbers of North Sea oil and gas workers, about the prospect of sustaining in future jobs. But I also ag- agree with you, Jeff, around other things Labour could do to signal um, investment and to signal how serious they are about those marine skills that are so critical and things like deep ports. We, we've been speaking to people in Shetland here over the past couple of days who are investing heavily in attracting a lot of private investment to have a deep port off the coast here so that they can do a lot of that high skilled work and retain those high skilled jobs here, here in Shetland maybe Keir Starmer needs to, to fly in here and and spend a bit of time here. I know he would get a warm welcome uh, given the experience that Andy and I have had over the past couple of days.
2: Mm-hmm. Andy, do you agree? Is this going to become an electoral battleground as, as Jeff was just outlining and Keir was thinking about there? I, I just, I'm quite intrigued by the language of, that you put along, that, that Keir Starmer put alongside this and, and understandably so about lowering bills, you know, very much making it a part of the cost of living conversation, which is obviously very personal to Everyone right now, and still will be by the time of the next election, and so you can kind of see the messaging there and sort of weaving these threads together.
1: Uh, yeah, I actually though I have to say I'm not convinced it will be an electoral battleground. Actually, it might be in the northeast, mm. uh, and you know that will uh, potentially be a good opportunity, as we mentioned earlier, for the Tories to cement some of their support up here. The reality is the electoral battlegrounds are going to be on cost of living. And although this is related to cost of living, it is not acutely related to cost of living. It's not going to change the bills tomorrow.
2: Um,
1: So I think the electoral battlegrounds will be cost of living, NHS and constitutional stuff. I mean, unfortunately, let's get back to basics here. This is Scotland, right? So the constitution is the electoral battleground that we're going to be seeing uh, next year. And this is important. Uh, broadly extremely important to the Scottish economy and the wider UK economy and I, as I say I can see it being a big issue up in the North East mm. in the elections there but nationwide I actually don't think it will be that no, big I, so,
0: no. Sorry if I could comment on in that though um, I think more my point was make it an election mm. issue I mean look energy security has never been so relevant to our yeah. country uh, and mm-hmm. and the point I'm making is that uh we achieve greater domestic energy security we will in turn create huge uh, economic security as well for our country this is honestly the ball game for me this is one one area that we can truly be by nature of our demographics we're an island with the huge investments in offshore wind the opportunities in carbon capture and therefore the links to blue and green hydrogen as well this is massive i would be doing everything in my power whatever party i'm in whether devolved or indeed at westminster and make this an election issue if you can get a coherent narrative in this i can tell you how i'm going to reduce your bills i can tell you how we're going to create more jobs sustainable economic jobs and you know what as part of this you have to support this world-class industry that served us so well for 50 years it's part of the same conversation and get out there in front of it be bold be robust and say we're all trying to get to as you rightly say the uh, the destination is how we get there this is how i'm going to get there yeah and comments but well, Hamza's comments really interest me because he might be looking at this and going, I need something that I can get over the Labour Party. And and if he plays this right, he might be able to tune it, which is why I suspect there's enough nuance in what Labour said yesterday to counter that if that happens. But, but I would how make can you this that? issue.
3: How can he do that and honour the Butte House Agreement? There, there's no exactly. way that we Yeah, for Well I think you've just agreement.
0: answered your own question. Yeah. <laughs> but mind Jeff- you, you, oil and gas is not part of the Butte House Agreement.
1: Yeah, but everything is, though. The, the, the problem with the House Agreement is it doesn't, the stuff that's not part of it is still a part of it, because it still has an impact on the whole relationship. And we know how powerful the Greens are. I mean, Jeff, you're speaking as though we're a grown-up country here, right? We're not. there, there is. If you look at the party incentives from one to the other, the Tories might make it a bit of an election issue, but they're not really in the running that much anymore in the way that they were. And in fact, they want the election issue to be uh, in the ref too, in the danger of the SNP doing a deal um, with Labour. Labour want, will not want this to be an election issue because they've already got themselves in trouble over it. So why would they want to talk about it even more? The SNP Hamza won't make this an election issue because he knows that if he does, his, his relationship with the Greens, which we know how much store he puts in, is a goner. I, I, I'm not saying it shouldn't be an election issue. And in any other jurisdiction, it's the sort of thing that would be. I just don't think anybody's got an incentive to make it one, don't you think, Kes?
3: So I, I, I've been reflecting a wee bit about, I think it's actually quite clever to focus your entire climate change policy on on this issue of, of clean power and North Sea oil and gas, because I actually think in a lot of ways, climate change policies are vote losers. So there are many other things that an incoming Labour government are going to have to do that in retail politics terms are really deeply unpopular. So they're going to have to tell people they can't drive petrol cars anymore. They're going to have to tell people that they have to change the gas boilers in their houses. They certainly don't want to talk about these issues ahead of any general election. So anchoring yourself on oil and gas is the baddie, but with some nuanced exceptions that make the right noises to the right communities, I think is the, is the best possible place and um, Labour can be. I've got a wider issue, though, with the five missions that Labour are putting forward, you know, running through them. The one that should be there that isn't there, from my perspective, is anything to say about housing. I actually think that would be a a really fundamental campaign and ground for Labour to be on, to talk about everyone's right to a home, helping people who want to buy a home, buy a home, tackling the rising interest rates crisis that we're faced with just now, building social housing and benefiting from all the jobs and skills that flow from that, not least the ability to reduce the housing benefit bill by providing more affordable housing and getting people out of the private rented sector into houses that suit them better. I feel like there's this whole area for Labour that's not even mentioned in, in their five missions, and it would be easier, more comfortable, more principled territory for them to be on than tying themselves in knots around oil and gas policy. Yeah.
0: I mean, just interested what you say there. I mean, I totally agree with housing, by the way. That, that's a huge mm-hmm. issue, um, particularly... Um, uh, in, in England and Southeast uh, uh, England, uh, but across the country as well. Um, but you mentioned the, Bre- the House Agreement here. At what point will it take for Hamza to look at uh, his electoral opportunity and go, I cannot succeed unless I mix things up substantially? So let's assume that Brother Glenn by-election takes place. Let's also assume that they take an absolute hammering uh, akin to what they did in the Bells Hill uh, by-election last week. Um, at what point does his uh, Westminster MPs go, do you know what, boss, uh, this isn't looking good. We need a point of departure here. We need to change things up. Uh, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, Hamza uh, might believe that the, the, the agreement and the partnership is worth its weight in gold, but uh, very quickly it become, uh, it's worth its weight in rust if you're going to lose 20 to 30 seats in an election. Uh, And that might just be what he needs to change that. That's my point about the next few weeks are actually going to be extremely exciting over summer uh, because I think it'll dictate uh, what we know about how the SNP will approach upcoming period.
3: So I think if the Westminster Party start telling the Scottish Party what to do, then you will have truly transformed into the Scottish Labour Party. (laughs) 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 You accept
1: accept
0: my point. I mean, this has not been an auspicious start uh, by any measure. Right. And so what's it going to take to change things? Um, and nobody's saying, you, ha- you don't necessarily need to get uh, rid of the agreement or the partnership with the Greens. But we've been talking for weeks now in this podcast and elsewhere, all of us uh, in our commentary about the need to show a bit of teeth towards the Greens. Uh, and uh, I will not repeat, for those who remember it, my green tail wagging SMB dog <laughs> mistake that it took me a while to get up. But, 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 you know, at some point we have to look at this and go, look, my future as First Minister, depends on this. So um, I, 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 I need to chart a new
3: course. I don't think it can be undone now. I think the, the, the moment to um, move on from the Butte House Agreement was at the point that the, the First Minister took office. You are right to say that oil and gas doesn't feature in, in the Butte House Agreement. I have read it closely from, from beginning to end. But I do think there's something about the chronology of everything. The former First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, said about CAMO in advance of the Butte House Agreement being said, laying the foundations... Um, for the scenario that we're describing here, which is just off the table, the idea that the SNP would be for any further exploration or or licences being granted. But look, tactically, now, the whole point of the Butte House Agreement is to stop the SNP worrying about navigating a budget process every January. So if they were to withdraw from the Butte House Agreement and put themselves back into the vein of having to bargain with other political parties to get a budget through then they've gifted the opposition parties a dream scenario where they know that in not allowing that budget to pass, they can get to a quick election, they can bring down the government, they can call Hamza all end of pain. I just think it's tactically impossible for him to get out of that situation now. And because he's bound by the House Agreement, I think he's also bound by a policy not to change his position on North Sea oil and gas.
2: It's really interesting. I know the energy, for, for when we last did energy in depth, when that leak emerged a couple of weeks ago, loads of you listening wanted to get in touch and share your own experiences, your own insight as well. So please feel free to do that once again, now that there's detail uh, and this discussion uh, can carry on. Uh, hello at hollywoodsources.com is the email address to get in touch. Uh, Kezi, we must reflect what the Sunday Times reported just at the weekend just passed. Labour will defeat the SNP at the next election for the first time since 2010, To become Scotland's largest party at Westminster, according to a landmark new poll. Uh, It's described in the Sunday Times as a seismic reversal of fortunes. Uh, The Labour Party would end a decade of electoral mediocrity north of the border to win a majority of seats by returning 26 MPs. Uh, That would be quite a surge, and I mean, obviously, would really quite um, remarkably improve Sir Keir Starmer's chances of being Prime Minister at the next or after the next election. Do you believe it? Do you believe that the surge is on?
3: No, I, I, I don't feel it. Um, I, I, I live in Fife these days. I spend a lot of time um, moving around and talking to people uh, across Fife. You know, a, a past bastion of, of Labour support with the exception of North East Fife. it seats like Glenrothes and Kirkcaldy and Fermlin, you could have banked on in the early years of Blair's um, government to return Labour MPs with huge majorities that now turn return SNP majorities and um, you know in four or five figures and um, in some instances. You know, there'd be two polls in, in recent times that I've looked at closely. Of course there's panel based from the weekend that has one, 34-34, but, but prior to that we had polls reporting a 10% drop in SNP support in six months. But that was a 10% drop from 51% to 41%. I don't think Labour have been polling into the 30 since something like 2010. So there is a shift to that extent for sure, Mm. but when you break it down by constituencies, I still think, as Andy said earlier, the constitution dominates. So in seats where you have a strong majority for no in 2014, Um, They are seats which will fall more rapidly to Labour than they will elsewhere in the country. So you can see very quickly how Labour regains the seats that I won in 2017. So to Edinburgh South, you can add Rutherglen, you can add East Lothian, you can add Kirkcaldy. You might squeak a seat in Glasgow, you might squeak a seat in Lanarkshire. But seven seats is a good bit short of, of 25. Now, the thing about 2017 general election result was, although we won seven seats... We also ended up with nearly 20 seats where the majority that the SNP MP had was around about the 1500 mark. So suddenly there was a whole other 20 seats in Scotland that were back in play. But they were seats with really strong um, yes support in them. So you are looking at direct transfers from SNP voters to Labour voters. And I, I I just don't feel that yet. Of course, Labour are on the rise. Of course, you'd much rather be Keir Starmer now than Jeremy Corbyn in 2017 and in 2019 or Ed Miliband in 2015. Of course, you would opt for his set of circumstances. But my big fear about Labour's prospectus and, and the expectation management the problem it has right now is the issue is turnout for me. Is there enough of a reason for people to switch their votes? Is there enough of a difference between what Labour's offering in the form of a Labour Prime Minister for the whole of the UK than what they're currently getting from the Conservatives. It's not enough just to not be the Tories. And it's very hard to offer a radical platform when you've just had Jeremy Corbyn lead the Labour Party, if that makes sense. He needs to show just a little bit more of how things might be different um, there's still time for that, of course. We're still 14 months out. Why would you use all your best ideas now? Mm-hmm. You set the framework with these five missions. There has to be some some really juicy, good policies to come to drive people to the ballot box and away from their now quite established SNP voting patterns towards voting for Labour instead.
1: I I yeah I, I agree with a lot of that. To be honest, I think there's there's two things to say. One is a very basic expectation management issue. You don't want people to think you're going to do really well because... Is that what you're doing, Is that what
2: you're doing on TV behalf TV. of the Labour parties? this expectation management... Sorry, Andy, to interrupt, but I'm just wondering if that's what Kezia is doing.
3: I, I think you know, they would say that's the first time I've done them a favour in a very long time <laughs> if that were true.
2: <laughs> OK, fine. Sorry, Andy, go on. <laughs> I mean, I, I, mean,
1: I, I think Kez has been realistic. And I think that um, if you're if you're Labour... In Scotland, especially, this is a two election strategy here. If Keir Starmer isn't Prime Minister, Anas Sarwar can't be First Minister. Because if you have the backdrop of the Tories in Downing Street, that, excel, that puts the ball straight back into the court of the SNP. That's exactly what the SNP need in order to gather people around their votes again to have the Tories in Downing Street. So if Labour are not in Downing Street, Anas Sarwar can't win anyway. But you also don't want a situation where Labour get 20 seats at next year's election and suddenly the media are saying, oh, that's disappointing, isn't it? Because yeah. the SNP got 30. Now, so I think there's a basic expectation management issue. We've we've got uh, what 59 seats in Scotland and um, the Tories are going to hold their six and might win one more. The Lib Dems are going to hold their four and might win one more. But let's just say it's 10 off. You're battling but for 49 seats. So for Labour to win the SNP need to lose 24 seats. They need to lose half their seats. Now, um, the SNP are at a point where, yes, their their vote share is going down, but I think they've got a floor at the moment for the next few years anyway, of maybe something like 35%. Hamza Yusuf could steal the SNP's camper van and go on holiday for a year and they're still going to pull 35%, right? <laughs> so there are only so many seats they could lose. Um, and I... If I had to put my mortgage on one party or the other coming out on top of this Westminster election, I'm still seeing the SNP are getting more seats than Labour in Scotland. So to allow that other narrative to uh, come anywhere near the surface, I mean, I know it's, not, you know, it's polling, it's not their fault, but they, they have to downplay it, because, pro- mainly because it's probably not going to happen. And the other thing I would say as well is this. Um, Labour, I've categorised it before as soft nationalists and soft unionists. Labour have got the soft unionists back because they're people who've been voting Tory because the Tories are in Downing Street and therefore they think they're the best way to stop in their F2. Labour have got those back. They don't need to worry about them anymore. What they don't have yet is sufficient numbers of soft nationalists. So they are people who've been voting SNP and who've been polling for yes because they think that on balance, although they're not anti-Britains, they are not anti brits they do not hate English people, they don't hate Britain, they're not desperate, they're not going in marches every week and flying saltires in their garden, they still think it's a better bet to vote SNP. Now, you have got to pull those people towards you with something positive. And I think that is where Labour have not made sufficient progress yet. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't advise Labour to get complacent about their vote and how well they're doing uh, in a way that might make them think they don't actually need to take any And
3: just really quickly on that, the, the one thing we don't have yet is an SNP general election strategy uh, because of the difficulties that, that they've been in in recent times. And I think they can pull one together um, fairly quickly that will offer dividing lines that that might discourage um, voters drifting from the SNP to Labour. So, for example, um, the SNP believe in re-entering the European Union. Labour have no intention of doing that. The SNP are pro-immigration. Labour want to be strong against having more inward um, immigration. The SNP would like to enhance social security and, and welfare, although I would argue fiscally that's very difficult to do, but they can say it. Um, Labour have said under Rachel Reeves that spending will be very difficult in the first days of, of a new Labour government. So you can see fairly quickly how the SNP offer in an election strategy dividing lines that make this task of achieving 25 seats a bit harder.
2: Mm. Jeff, I want to ask you about another bit of this uh, poll, which is on uh, the popularity of politicians. Um, and Nicola Sturgeon has has really dropped off, plummeted by 38 points since February after she resigned. Uh, also, Hamza Youssef, he received a small increase, reports the Sunday Times in his ratings, to minus 12, but both of them are behind Kate Forbes, the former finance secretary, who returned the only positive rating of plus three, although the Sunday Times highlights that lots of voters remain uncertain. What does that mean? Does that, is that cause for concern for Hamza Youssef, that he is less popular than his leadership rival? I don't know. How would you analyse that?
0: Yeah, it's... um, I've never been a fan of leadership uh, uh, polling Mm. uh, that don't include leaders, you know, that that include non-leaders. Yeah. Because uh, Humza's being held accountable for being First Minister, Kate Forbes isn't. But nonetheless, yeah, it does indicate uh, that there might be a bit of buyer's remorse out there in terms of what manifested itself in the SNP leadership contest and i think it actually confirms also what we've been saying about Hamza not being quite able to chart his own course and distance himself as gone before i think um if i were hums mm. post this uh by-election if it went the way that we think it will um i would be doing my my damnedest to try and bring kate forbes close and say what job do you want um, I mean, I, I know we're... we're I, great analysis by the guys there, by the way, in terms of um, uh, Labour not counting their chickens. They shouldn't. And uh, and we still need to see the colour of the SNP's money as far as this general election is concerned. And uh, Kej is absolutely right. There are clear dividing lines that they can seek to parrot. Um, but nonetheless, um, I would be doing everything in my power if I was Hamza to ensure I can continue as First Minister. Mm. Uh, and that would include bringing my top team... With me, and my top team in my head would definitely include
2: Kate Forbes. It's really interesting, really, really interesting. Uh, we've done loads already on today's podcast Nicola Sturgeon, Labour's energy plan, but on the, the fascination of the, the, with the Butte House Agreement and where things stand with that and the relationship between the SNP and the Greens as well. We mentioned that Andy and Kezia are both in Shetland. Poor Kezia, I hear you all scream. Uh, we want to find out a little bit more about. <laughs> about- <laughs> about what about what this is
1: going in a bad direction now this is becoming a little bit anti.
2: (laughs) (laughs) it's all said with the greatest of affection of course Andy um I just want to find out you are Professor Kezia Dugdale you know your work now Kezia is with the John Smith Centre um what are you doing there what what is the purpose of of your current mission of your trip to Shetland Uh, and tell us a little bit about kind of local democracy and what your what your focus is
3: so, look, in a nutshell, the John Smith Centre does three things. We research the relationship between the public and their politicians, the degree to which we trust politicians in our lives, and, and and why that matters. We also advocate for politics as a force for good in the world through speaking at and hosting a variety of different events, and we also run a variety of different bespoke internship and development programmes, which are heavily targeted at breaking down structural barriers. People face access in public life. So, for example, one of those is funded by the Scottish Government to create more opportunities for people uh, from minority ethnic backgrounds to be involved in Scotland's civic life, whether that be working in Parliament or, or working in campaigning organisations. But the first two pillars of what I've described to you relate to why I'm here in Shetland, which is one, looking at um, the degree to which the public trust their political leaders, and also trying to encourage more people to turn towards democratic participation it rather than away from it. So really quickly, trust in politics has been low in the United Kingdom since records began. It fell off a cliff, edge, a cliff edge back in 2008 during the last economic recession, which also aligned with the MP's expenses scandal. It took another dip after the EU referendum for reasons that we're still trying to understand, but I would suggest are about the proliferation of, of Global populism and a polarisation that's forced us into camps that's made life pretty complicated and politics pretty toxic. But it's also falling again. And you could point quite quickly to Partygate as a source for that. But what I would warn people um, listening about that is that the early evidence shows us that things like Partygate affect all politicians equally. The, The public don't differentiate between Conservative or Labour or SNP on this, it's a plague on all their houses. So the standing of politics in the eyes of the public is falling. It's also increasingly unequal. So the people least likely to trust the people who govern their lives are women, those in low incomes and those um, from poorer backgrounds. Uh, sorry, young people. So if you're young and poor and and female, you're about as far removed from the political system as you can possibly imagine. Mm. And I'm here to try and um, understand what it might take to encourage more diverse people in Shetland to Stand for the council or to think about becoming more actively involved in, in civic life so discovering what puts them off if it's structural if it's societal if it's you know what all the different reasons are and, and trying to help the council come up with a plan to encourage more people to turn towards politics rather than away from it
2: really interesting and are, are you are you leaving feeling positive
3: Yeah, but it's been the most amazing experience to be here um, for the past 48 hours, which is a really short period of time. Of course, yeah. This is a really intense community. When you've got 23,000 people living on on a beautiful set of quite exposed islands like this, their future is bound together by their common values and the community that they share and the land that they share and the resources that they all have a vested interest in. So of course they're political, of course they have opinions, of course they have strong views uh, about the future of the community that they live in. They don't necessarily see how they can use the opinions they have to shape the policy outcomes that are coming down the road. It feels like it's someone else's job or something that's being done to them by governments in Edinburgh or London, um, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot in that um, that I need to think a bit harder about and explore and see what we can do. Uh, But I'm definitely leaving more hopeful than perhaps I arrived.
0: Kesha, can I ask you a question? It's fantastic uh, uh, initiatives and work that John Smith Centre does. How much does social media come up amongst younger people and the sheer toxicity of it? Does it is that something they look at and go, you know, uh, uh, there's Kesha you'll tell me about politics and how I can shape and, uh, and improve my community or my constituency or whatever interest I'm involved in. And they get involved, go onto social media and think, well, bugger that for a game of toy soldiers, you know, because <laughs> it is brutal out there. It is. It's, 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 it's so polarised. And I just wonder how much that comes back from the students at all, if at all.
3: So there isn't a whole heap of evidence about um, the impact of social media on on young people. That's because we do very little polling in the UK with young people full stop. It's actually something I'd, I'd really like to change. And one of the future things we're looking at at the Johnsworth Centre is the idea of a, a UK youth poll that's done every six months, they do this in America, Harvard do this in America, uh, and they report trends because they use the same questions every six months. But they also change the questions uh, or add additional questions every six months to read the mood of the country. So I don't have exact um, information for you around young people, but we do have that data for women. Uh, and what I can tell you from that is that uh, how women will be perceived online is the single biggest turnoff. Um, that women have when it comes to considering politics or any sort of engagement in, in political life. It's how they're treated online. Now, of course, I don't have the answers in my rucksack here to fix social media overnight. I don't know if anybody does. We talk a lot about regulation and algorithms and yada, yada. Right now, all I've got is a toolkit to help women build a degree of resilience to help them cope with that. Um, exposure and criticism and the horrible toxicity, but there's an awful lot more we need to do in that regard because it's our democracy that's being threatened here and quite fundamentally.
2: That is really fascinating. Really, really fascinating. We will keep in touch with you, Kazia, as you continue uh, that work because it is absolutely brilliant to hear about. Uh, and we'll get you back on the podcast again soon. But thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Pleasure.
2: Uh, And thank you, Jeff, as well. And thank you, Andy, as well. Uh, Of course, you can follow, you can subscribe, and you can email, crucially. We'd love to hear from you. Email hello at hollyroodsources.com to get in touch Uh, anytime. The inbox is always open, and you can always drop your thoughts, your questions, your analysis as well, and we'll get them on the podcast. Uh, We drop into your feed every single week. I'm just going to say there's a slight chance we'll be a day late next week because I'm on holiday. So sorry about that. We've yet to work out exactly what we're doing. I promise I'm not going to be recording from the beach. That's all I'll say. Uh, So might just be a day late. Uh, But stick with us uh, and we'll talk to you again soon.